overcoming the resistance that keeps us sick and suffering. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Real quick, if there are any new listeners out there, I just wanted to quickly introduce myself. I'm Andrea. I'm the captain of this ship. I am a recovering alcoholic. I am a recovering codependent, and I am a recovering adult child. What the hell is an adult child, you ask? An adult child is someone who grew up in a dysfunctional family with unresolved childhood pain that surfaces and plays out in adulthood, and not in a very good way. I highly recommend that you go back to episode one as each episode builds off each other. You'll also get to hear all about the shit show that I once was and still am at times, let's be honest, but I promise that you will be entertained. So each episode we dive into a different topic. I provide you with a bunch of information, I share my own relevant experience, and then I have a conversation with an interesting guest. And today, y'all are in for a real damn treat, as I will be talking to Joe Ryan. Now, Joe is the host of the podcast, It's Not You, It's Your Drama. And I am super excited for y'all to hear this conversation, especially to all my dudes out there. You know, you don't hear many straight men out there talking about their trauma, talking about their dysfunctional upbringings, being as vulnerable as Joe is on a weekly basis on his podcast. It is truly inspiring, and I know that he has had a huge impact on so many people, but especially a lot of men, to go to that place of vulnerability and to face that shit that is holding us back from being our truest and best selves. So today, we are diving deep into resistance. Now, adult children are the grand masters of resistance. We have been practicing this shit our entire lives. We took on these common characteristics, the laundry list traits, as a form of resistance to our true selves because we learned that it wasn't okay to be our true selves, that we had to be someone else in order to feel loved, in order to feel safe, and then we carry these traits with us into adulthood as a form of resistance against our unresolved childhood pain. And while these characteristics may have provided a semblance of feeling loved, feeling safe as children, they make life a real fucking struggle in adulthood. So then when we consider the notion of healing, of confronting our past, we encounter even more resistance. I mean, can we even catch a break? So in my episode about alcoholism, I made the comment about alcoholism being the disease that tells us we don't have a disease. And so does the disease of family dysfunction. 
but in an even more insidious way. The disease of family dysfunction is a sneaky motherfucker, and it will do whatever it can to keep the dysfunction alive and thriving, to keep us in our faulty programming and destructive thought and behavior patterns. So what the hell do we do about this? As we've talked about, awareness is always the first step to change. Resistance is similar to denial, and we may not even realize that resistance is in play. So I want to talk about six of the most common tactics that the disease of family dysfunction deploys to keep us from healing. So number one, disloyalty. We tell ourselves that healing is an act of betrayal to our family. But we've talked about this, that this is complete bullshit. You know, healing requires that we talk about and acknowledge what we went through. But this is not about throwing our parents under the bus. This is about throwing the dysfunction under the bus. Number two, we blame our parents for how we turned out. Therefore, it's not our problem to fix. They're the ones that fucked us up, so why should we have to be the ones to do the hard work to heal from it? But let's just say you grew up in a home where your parents smoked in the house, and then in adulthood, you get lung cancer. Now, it's not your fault that you had to inhale all that secondhand smoke as a kid. It's not your fault that you got lung cancer. So why should you have to be the one to go through chemotherapy and radiation? Well, we all know that this sounds rather delusional. So does the line of thought that we shouldn't have to be the ones to do the work to heal from our childhoods. Let me be blunt, as I know you would expect nothing less from me. You're the only one that can do anything about it. Your parents can't do the work for you. It'd be great if they could, but they can't, okay? Number three, minimization. We tell ourselves that what we went through wasn't that bad. Like me, right? For example, my parents never hit me. My parents never told me I was a piece of shit. How much could it really have impacted me? Well, in fact, quite a lot. You know, emotional abuse, emotional neglect, emotional abandonment. Research has shown that this can be just as damaging as some of the more heinous types of trauma and abuse. So if your head is telling you right now, how bad could it really be? I would like for you to just consider that perhaps this is the disease of family dysfunction trying to prevent you from healing. Number four, we think we are broken beyond repair, that there is no hope for us. We're past the point of return. This is also complete bullshit. Anyone can change every damn one of us, but it does require work. Number five, We think that we can heal on our own, that we do not need to seek outside help. This was my experience. I thought that I could just fix this shit on my own, that I could just read a book and that I just wouldn't date for a year and that I would be a-okay. And not only did I not get any better, I got worse and I found myself in even more pain. Listen. We're nuts. We be gray. We be needing to get some damn help. Now, that can look many different ways. A therapist, a 12-step group, a support group, a spiritual advisor, 
Bottom line, we cannot heal in isolation. We need others to help us see the shit that we can't see, to give us hope, to hold our hands as we go through this rather grueling yet rewarding process. And last but not least, number six, pain. We know that healing will require us to look at all the shit that we have been trying to avoid our entire lives. And we don't think that we're strong enough to cope with the painful emotions that will arise. But what we fail to realize is that resisting these painful emotions just makes them worse and eternal. Whereas when we confront our pain head on, we will eventually move past it. Okay, so you've identified, you've acknowledged your resistance that you may be facing. So then what? Well, then you do nothing. You accept it. You sit with it. You don't fight it. Just as we must sit with our painful emotions in order to move past them, we must sit with our resistance in order to move past our resistance. Because what happens is when you sit and accept your resistance, you will eventually get to a point where the pain of the resistance becomes greater than the pain of confronting the shit that you're resisting. This is what we talked about last week, right? About how our greatest pain ultimately becomes our greatest blessing. I wish it didn't have to be this way, but unfortunately, that's the name of the game. Adult children have a ridiculous tolerance for pain, and it is only through great pain that comes great change. So we are going to be talking about this and more in my conversation with Joe. And for any of you who may not stick around to the end of the episode, if you could please give me a five-star rating on Apple, I would really appreciate it. It really helps other people find the show. And there are a lot of sick and struggling adult children out there that need to hear this shit. So thanks in advance. And here's Joe. It's my pleasure to introduce a fellow adult child, a fellow trauma survivor. He is a trauma coach and he is the host of the podcast, It's Not You, It's Your Trauma. Hello, Joe Ryan. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, I think that your podcast could also be, or I might be using this as an excuse the next time I need to break up with a boyfriend. I'm going to say, it's not (laughs) you, it's my trauma. There you go. <laughs> it, it, it works. Fill in the blanks with whatever situation. Yeah, exactly. It's not me. It's um, you. It's a, it's a Seinfeld episode. Yeah. It's not you. It's my broken picker. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been doing the podcast now for what? A couple years? Uh, probably a year and a half or so. Uh-huh. And it yeah. started with you. You were doing some writing and then one day you decided to record yourself and then somebody was like, you need to be sharing this shit. Am I right? 
Yeah, I mean, I've been writing and journaling for decades, and it always was a, a relief for me. Like, just brought so much clarity. It connected the dots. I started to understand, you know, my life. And it got to a point where the writing just didn't seem to do it anymore. And one day I just, you know, it was, it was actually Christmas Day. I was miserable. I was alone and just, you know, feeling sorry for myself and went into my office and turned on a microphone and started recording in, in place of writing. And I found that I had gotten to a deeper level within myself. And it just felt, I just felt completely connected to me in a way that I had never felt before. And I just kept doing it. I just kept recording and I kept feeling lighter and better and there was more clarity. And then one day I let somebody listen to one of the episodes. Like it wasn't even an episode, it was just me rambling. And they were like, why isn't this a podcast? And I was like, well, because nobody can know this like publicly. <laughs> and, and then, you know, just sat with it. And I, I found that I just found a lot of peace in, in recording. And I ended up putting it up, not thinking anybody was ever going to listen or would ever be popular. And I just kept doing it. It just kind of gained momentum real quick. So I was really surprised by that because it wasn't one of those things where I planned on, you know, I was never sitting there going, I'm going to host the podcast and I'm going to go down this path. It was just kind of, um, it was just a necessity for me to get in touch with myself. And then I figured I'd just start sharing it and people seem to connect to it. So that's really good mirroring and validation. Yeah. And shows that, that you're on the right path and kind of the universe giving you a little wink that this is the road that you're supposed to go down. It definitely feels right. You know, I've tried a lot of different things to heal the pain, different careers, different hobbies, and none of them, I felt like I was trying too hard to become something and get somewhere to take mm -hmm. the pain away. And with this, I go into the pain and I, I express it verbally and it, it resonates real good inside. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to put some of the stuff out there that I put out there because it's so exposing and so, I'm so raw and vulnerable with it. But that's where you want to get to. You want to get to that place where your soul just feels in complete harmony with yourself. Mm -hmm. Have you had any sort of revelations around kind of switching to a verbal format and why? why the writing kind of stopped working and being, you know, cathartic and then switching over to, to speaking. Have you had any insight as to why that started to do it for you instead? I think it was just it, the stream of consciousness with speaking where I don't have to worry about, you know, my arthritis when I'm writing with a pen or mm -hmm. autocorrect mm -hmm. on the phone. Um, it just flowed a lot better. And I found that I, I got below all of the fear and the anxiety and I got right into the pain and the trauma and just speaking about it. Like I met it on its own level and I found mm -hmm. that so much more healing. I, I don't know how to explain it any better than that. It just clicked. It, it, it flows. Like I'll, I'll fire up the mic and I, I don't stop and edit. It's just this one long stream of consciousness. And that feels so good not to be watching yourself from behind and judging yourself and yeah, just yeah. getting it getting into yourself and just being. Yeah. Cause it's almost like the pen adds almost like another barrier between what's going on in your head and, and then what comes out. Yeah. It's another layer um, there mm -hmm. that's between you and your soul. And when you speak from your soul, there's just, it's kind of just raw and, and genuine and pure. And I just love how it feels. I wish I could live there 24 seven. 
because it just feels so right. Mm-hmm. And have you been able to, because um, I've listened to your podcast quite a bit and just your struggle with being able to receive praise or compliments. Now, when you receive feedback from a listener and they tell you how your podcast is impacting their lives in a positive way, do you feel like you are able to receive that? So much better now. Um, I have a good friend of mine. She was telling me that, you know, this isn't all of you. This is just something that you do. And I had one point, I just felt like I was putting myself so far out there and I immersed myself so much in it. I had no balance in life mm-hmm. that, you know, it was kind of everything. And then the feedback made me uncomfortable because I didn't see any value in it. And it was like, yeah, you might enjoy this, but I feel like a piece of shit in the rest of my life. So do you really know what you're talking about? Like just that negative Mm self-talk. And then it got, it it just had gotten easier over time as the more I've owned it and just feel like it's, it's one part of my life. It doesn't define me completely. And when you, when you fill yourself up and you start to value yourself more on different levels you don't rely on the feedback to fill you up as much. Mm-hmm. I just did, I didn't believe it because I didn't feel good about me. And the better I feel about myself, the easier it is to take the compliments and the feedback that you get. But yeah, it was really, really painfully uncomfortable. It's like, you, you're not talking about me, are you? Like, cause yeah. I don't have this, I don't have this perception of myself, but I don't know if I ever will. Um, so the feedback doesn't, lift me up. It doesn't drag me down. It just kind of, it feels, it's a, it's a really good positive mirror and it keeps me motivated. Yeah. At first you're like, I think you sent this to the wrong person. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I'm like, you can't be talking about me. Can you like, you sure you got the right guy? (laughs) Well, that just, I mean, it's nice when we're able to reflect and and see um, our growth, you know, and how we change. So I think that's awesome that you're able to reflect upon that and see how you're able to receive it differently. And the way, the best part about it, I think the the big, not the best, but the biggest change in that was I stopped internalizing it and looking at it from my point of view of, you know, you must be emailing the wrong guy. It was more of look how much courage it took for you to write this and expose yourself to a virtual stranger and you know, taking that slant on it also made it easier. And it was more of a connection to seeing how, you know, how brave people are to, to tell you some really horrific things that happened to them. And you look at it in that context, you, mm-hmm. I feel more of a vehicle mm-hmm. than anything else now. I was thinking about, you know, with you being a, a straight white male, And you don't really hear a lot of them out there spreading the word about trauma and and talking about these very kind of vulnerable issues. And so I'm wondering, has there ever been a block there where, I don't know, your testosterone or your masculinity has like ever come into play? Or is that at all in your negative (laughs) self-talk? Yes, yes. And yes, Um, it's. It was really hard at the beginning. I mean, I've always been a deep feeler. I've always been sensitive. I put on the macho Neanderthal thing, you know, when I needed to. 
And that just took a lot of energy. And, you know, talking about love and self-care and being emotional and being vulnerable as a guy at first, it was really hard um, putting that out there and, and, and feeling manly and feeling strong and feeling tough because just the, all the stigmas against, you know, being a male and being emotional, I just couldn't pretend anymore. And mm -hmm. there was a point where it was like, either I'm really going to get to know the real me or I'm going to live the rest of my life unhappy, pretending to be something I'm not. So mm. I try, I try to look at it more as a human thing, as opposed to a gender thing, because mm -hmm. I get emails and messages from men and women and underneath it all, it's the same thing. We want to be true to ourselves. We want to be authentic. We want to be able to love and be loved and give love and feel love you know, as us without fear. And it doesn't matter what gender you are. We all have the same need for that connection. So I try to take that out of the equation and it's, it's building up strength doing it. You know, I would record yep. something, I would put it up there and then I would go hide for a couple of days and, you know, not look at email or phone because I was afraid of what I was going to get back. You know, you're not a man, you're a wuss, you know, pull your pants up, let's get going. You, you know, you and there wasn't much of that, you know, there was a little pushback, but it got to the point where it didn't matter. Yeah. I just need to, I just need to be me. And I'm, I'm, I'm human more than I'm a man or any gender. And I try to put it in that perspective. But I think it's, um, I think you're an amazing role model for that though, because I mean, what you're doing is very manly and masculine. So I think you're a, a wonderful example for, a lot of men out there who are kind of stunted and blocked in that area. So thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, it's, it's conditioning, you know, you're supposed yep. to be this and that doesn't feel right. The transition from going into that vulnerability to find the strength, to be okay, to be emotional and vulnerable and open. It, it's a process just like any part of recovery. You have to learn how to get comfortable with the things that make you feel shameful and and uncomfortable and worthless and not living up and not fitting in. I just, I don't care to fit in anymore. It's more, I just want to belong to self mm. and whatever mm -hmm. comes after that comes after that. And, you know, the messages I get from men are, are you can feel the, the hesitation with them getting vulnerable as they're sending the email, mm. you know, like I'm mm -hmm. reading it, but, but you, you know that they want to get there and it just takes time to, because that's protection. All of that macho mm -hmm. bullshit is just protection for the stalkness underneath. And mm -hmm. when you can pull away that, that protection and, and get into the vulnerability, that's when you're going to build strength with it. I feel okay saying I'm a sensitive, deep feeling man <laughs> where I never used to be. Mm -hmm. You should put that on your dating profile deep, sensitive, <laughs> emotionally available man. <laughs> yeah. So you'd funny. be surprised how, how many women don't, they say they like, but they really don't because when you show up and you're vulnerable, they're just like, oh, no, yeah. where's, where's, where's the Neanderthal part. It's like, but you said you wanted this, <laughs> but I, I, I think most women don't know what to do with it. No. Yeah. It's okay. Most men don't, don't know what to do with me either just cause I'm kind of a, a whole lot. So that's okay. <laughs> yes. And you'll, you'll find uh, the right fit if you just stay true. True that. So I want to talk about you hitting your trauma bottom, like kind of your adult child bottom. And I know that you've had kind of two. So, yeah. you know, I think we're similar in the sense that 
we grew up in dysfunctional families and then turns turned to drugs and alcohol um, and then got sober when that stopped working. And then at a certain point in sobriety, all this shit kind of came to the surface. So I was just hoping that you could, you could share a little bit about that. Yeah. I've started drinking and drugging at an early age, um, you know, hospitalized at 17 for overdoing it a little bit and a little bit, you know, they just, <laughs> just a little bit, you know, um, waking up in the hospital was never fun. That was the worst hangover of my life, but you, you know, and I continued after that. I just, there was, it was just a way to eliminate the pain of being that was in, you know, all the trauma. And I didn't know what the word trauma was really until about five years ago. But the, you know, when I first started drinking and drugging, it just shut down that part of my brain that just beat me up every single day in the, the self-consciousness and, you know, always watching and being on guard, it, it took it away. And I just felt like I was at home and there was a peace to it. But eventually all addictions fail. And, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, I don't want to live this life anymore. And, you know, I cleaned up for a long time and, you know, got on track, had a business, a wife, kids, house, you know, living the life that I felt like I was raised to live. Like I didn't really have a plan B and it, it all fell apart on me and, you know, lost pretty much everything I'd built up my entire life in like a short 18 month period. And I just kind of bottomed out and, you know, I picked up again after 17 years and mm. it was, I, it wasn't like, you know, it, it was just a weird place to be losing everything and realizing that I didn't have the strength and the energy to spend the next 20 years getting back to that place. And I, I didn't know how to go about living anymore. And then one night I picked up and I went real hard for a while. And I was, it's amazing how fast you get back to where you were. Like, it's just this, it's this drinking muscle memory where I thought it was going to be the slow progression of just having a couple of drinks here and there, but I was, I was blacking out drinking within a month. And I woke up one day in somebody's backyard, didn't know where I was. And that was the, you know, the reality check that I needed. And I just kind of started to wean off of it again. And I tried to get myself back, but I was, you know, I was just sitting in the pain and the trauma. And I realized that nothing outside of myself was going to take it away anymore. And I just didn't know what to do with that. And for about two years, I was just like a walking zombie. And then I had this, you know, abuse trauma recall that I didn't know um, that it was there previously. And that really took me to the place I needed to go. Like that was the ultimate bottom for me. I was raw. Uh, I was exposed. My entire reality that I had spent my life building, you know, was was not there anymore. Like I, I saw I had this whole false self thing going on and I felt like I perfected it. And then all of a sudden I had this memory of abuse and I had to find out how to live with that. And it was just so painful. Like I had tried everything in recovery. I've, I've read everything. I've listened to everything I've written when I went in and sat in the pain of the abuse for, you know, a couple of hours and then days and weeks after, I just kept feeling lighter by mm. sitting in the fear and the pain and the hurt and reliving the abuse, you know, over and over again. Every time I had gone to it, I just felt emotionally lighter. There was less fear. There was less anxiety. There was less pain. And that was the big click for me. It was like, okay, this is the way we recover. We sit in our pain 
and we realize the reality of our life, not the lies that, you know, or the false self that you kind of built up to cover up the shame and the hurt. It was actually to go in it and sit with it and re-experience it, to realize, Mm -hmm. to grieve it, to grieve it. Mm -hmm. It was a loss of childhood. It was a loss of innocence to grieve that loss so that it didn't drive me anymore. It didn't drive my compulsion compulsions. It didn't drive my self-hate. It didn't drive the addictions. It, it was a way of freeing myself from it. You know, you just, mm-hmm. and then you just keep doing it. Things start rising up and you feel them and you learn how to process the hurt and the pain that's still trapped inside of you. Mm-hmm. So when you drank after 17 years, obviously you have 17 years of 12 step recovery in your head. When you picked up that drink, what was that experience like? Was there any relief? Cause I just feel like if I were to relapse, I feel like I would just feel immense guilt immediately. I don't even know if I would be able to enjoy it. Um, well, I guess it's where, where I was at. I, I lost a multi-million dollar business. I lost my house my wife, my kids half the time, my life savings. I met a woman after I gotten separated. We were about to move in and start our life together. She got hit by a car, didn't know who I was, Hmm. got her back to health. And then she was like, then I started dealing with the trauma of the car accident and I kind of spiraled down and she, she was kind of, she was like, you had, I have too much work to do. I can't, I can't, you're, you're detracting from me recovering so mm-hmm. basically the entire life I built up for years was gone and I was just lost. And I went back to that familiar language, which was drinking. And, mm-hmm. um, and I thought about it, you know, I was thinking about it. It wasn't like I just picked up one day. It was like, can I do this? Should I do this? I, you know, I was so proud of the 17 years and I'd become so empowered by not picking up for so long. I had nowhere to turn. I just felt completely alone in this world and I couldn't stand the pain that I was living in that the life that I spent decades creating was gone in 18 months. And I was just this lost little puppy out in this big dangerous world. And that was the only way that I knew how to cope when things got that bad, that I went back to it. And I thought I was going to feel worse. Um, Like you say, the the guilt and all that, I really truly thought I was going to feel worse. I think the thing, that felt bad was that I, you know, I did feel ashamed, you know, calling my sponsor and going, listen, I just threw away 17 years. And, you know, I felt like I disappointed myself and I disappointed other people, but I couldn't, I didn't know how to live with what I was dealing with alone and sober. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And I was off and running, but it didn't, you know, it didn't last long that heaviness. Like I'm glad that I went hard quick and then Mm -hmm. (laughs) had that slap in the face of where's my car? Whose backyard am I sleeping in? Mm. And how did, and how did I get here? It's like, we, we don't want to live this way anymore. We know this life we've done it. It's played out. It's not going to lead anywhere. And that was the, the climb back up from there. I know there's a stupid expression that like your disease is whenever we're in a meeting, our disease is out in the parking lot doing push-ups. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it was always stronger than me for a very long time. Absolutely. I was on the couch drinking and the disease was working out in the backyard. <laughs> oh, so, so my experience was that I always knew that aspects of my childhood were less than ideal 
Um, but I thought that since I was never physically abused or sexually abused, how could it truly have impacted me that much? So when I kind of hit this bottom, it was more so a realization of how much my childhood really did fuck me up. And so when you kind of had this initial, that trauma recall, I mean, had you completely dissociated to where you didn't remember any of the abuse or you were similar to me were like, eh, things were less than ideal, but it wasn't that bad. Well, I, I knew a lot of the abuse, but you know, I, it's just this, this one, I had no idea that it was mm-hmm. there, but you know, I, I knew the abuse. I knew a lot of the abuse and, you know, I, I was working through it. And for me, the physical abuse is the easiest for me to work through. It was that mm-hmm. slow drip of emotional conditioning of, Mm-hmm. being molded into what, you know, my source figures needed me to be so that they didn't feel their own shame and their own neediness and their own hurt. That it, it was just slow over time that you were conditioned into being something that you weren't to please them to get a little bit of affection. That's the most complicated part of it because it was so subtle over such a long period of time. And, you know, so much of your personalities develop, I think it's like 80% of your personalities develop before you're like four years old. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not exact on the numbers, but so, you know, you're conditioned before there's any logical thought yeah. and it's, in, it's ingrained in you. So to go and understand the conditioning before you even could ever have memories of it, for me, that's the hardest part to figure out and to work through. And that's all feeling like you can't think your way out of this. You have to feel your way through it. And your body knows, your body knows more than your mind will ever know. So sitting with those feelings and feeling them and following them down to where they lead, like that's where the answers are. Nobody wants to do this work. This work sucks. It's hard. It's painful. It's humiliating. It's degrading. It's just everything negative. But when you go through and you find the answers to how I have fucked up my life so many times and self-sabotage and gone down the wrong paths just not to feel pain, when you go into that pain and you sit with it and you make friends with it and you become stronger than it, your life gets so much easier. It's just the point of, of committing to doing it. Yep. I wanted to talk some about just kind of resistance to to healing and, you know, resistance to going down this path. And my experience was that, you know, when I really hit this bottom, I had been in so much pain that I was ready. I'm like, let's go there. I'm the type of person that I get so excited to go to therapy. So I I don't feel like I um, experienced the kind of resistance that I think most people do when it comes to this stuff. I was just like, let's do it. I finally figured out what the fucking problem is. Um, let's go there. But I know that for a lot of people, that's not, you know, really the case. And they have a lot of fear about what emotions, you know, the work will bring up and the pain and not being able to handle it. Uh, and I know that you do a lot of trauma coaching. And so I was just wondering if you could speak upon, um, you know, your own experience and the experience of others when it comes to resistance to beginning the healing journey? Well, I think most people don't know or acknowledge and have minimized their abuse. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you grow up in a home, like, and it's normal to you. And you create this false self unknowingly and become whatever that your role is in that family. For me, it was nice guy people 
pleaser. I'm not allowed to have anger. I'm not allowed to, you know, be upset. I'm not allowed to look to, to have sadness. I am only allowed to have these positive feelings. I really, truly thought that was me. So when you start to realize that it's this, you've been programmed and conditioned to be this way, and there are emotions that you have cut off and have never integrated, the fear of experiencing and feeling my anger and feeling my sadness brought me into shame. And that critical parent in my head would just beat myself up. So I didn't know that I had a false self. When I realized I had, the resistance was the pain of going against your family system role to become more authentic because the guilt of, you know, speaking your mind, setting boundaries, like, you know, those were beatings. Those were, those were verbal and physical abuse when you stood up for yourself that you learned not to stand up for yourself, become who everybody needed you to be. And when you start becoming yourself, you have to deal with all of that negativity and Nobody wants to do it. So I think a lot of the resistance for people is they have minimized their abuse. They have internalized it, that they're just wrong, broken, and defective. And they've accepted it on some level. The journey to turn that around is so difficult. And, the, and it's so painful that you do resist it. I mean, what human goes into pain? We are always looking for ways to f- not feel bad you know, Mm -hmm. to feel better, to feel more whole and complete. But we do it in ways with, you know, drinking, drugging, working, sexing, whatever, obsessing. We find ways to stay away from these feelings. We have to, I say this all the time, I have to embarrass myself to myself to heal. I don't Mm want to look at all the things that I have done that I have shame about because the pain and the, the emotional disturbance in me is so great that I feel like my head is going to explode. I can't handle it. So the resistance is, you know, humans don't want to feel bad. We spend our life trying not to feel bad or to feel good. And we look at everything on TV, magazines, social media, nobody is showing anything negative, anything that isn't shiny and glossy. And I'm looking at all this stuff going, I feel like a worthless piece of shit. The rest of the world's got it together. And it's mm-hmm. compounded. So I'm going to gravitate towards m- making you look at me in a way that I feel better about myself instead of actually mm-hmm. going into the pain, pain and the sadness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard you talk about how you've been able to get to a place now. You know, you talk about sitting with your feelings and your thoughts. When, when do you feel like the transition occurred for you to where because I know now you know that the pain, the uncomfortability is temporary and that um, on the other side of it, you will feel lighter. And so now you're at a place where you're kind of able to accept those uncomfortable feelings and emotions. Was there like a pivotal point where you feel like you were able, you made that switch? It was when I had the trauma recall about four or five years ago. You know, it was, um, I, I, st- I started to, I couldn't escape where I was at. Like I had to either push back on somebody in anger, or I had to accept the fact that this had happened to me. Like, and you know, it was just like, the the thing was, this isn't normal. And I said, and then I, there was this long pause and somewhere deep down within me, this, it came up. It was like, well, what happened to me wasn't normal. And soon as I had said that those words came out of my mouth, this floodgate had opened 
And for four hours, I just lived in this abuse that had happened decades ago. Mm. After the four hours, when I finally had calmed down and relaxed, I had felt a peace within my body that I had never felt before. I was just raw and open and I wasn't hiding and I wasn't running and I wasn't protecting and I wasn't covering up. Like I just took all of my shit and I dumped it right out on the table for everybody to see, including myself. I was light. I mean, listen, it sucked afterwards. Like I had a lot to deal with. I had a lot to process. I had to figure out, you know, how I'm going forward with this new information. I didn't like that at all. And that was a shitty couple of months, but there was that a piece And that was the big click for me. So when feelings had come up after that, and even to this day, I will get a long stretch of very comfortable, very peaceful inside of me. And then all of a sudden, one day I start to feel uncomfortable. And I know now it's like, okay, the next layer is starting to present itself. I don't know what this is. I don't know where it's going to lead, but I know in a few days, I'm going to have to schedule time to just sit alone, quiet and feel bad. And I mm. wait till it, it starts to build, it builds, it builds. I can feel it building. And emotionally, I'm heavy. It's hard for me to get through the day. It's hard for me to focus and concentrate because my body just is overwhelmed. It's like there's, there's a blender going on inside with my emotions. They're just all over the place. I feel bad. There's no clarity. And then I will sit with them. And sometimes it's an hour and sometimes it's 48 hours. And mm-hmm. I will eventually get to the point where it will lead me to this release I'll find anger, I'll find hurt, I'll find sadness, and then I will finally get to tears and sobbing. And that's the grieving point. And once I start sobbing about it, I feel so much lighter the next couple of days or a couple of weeks. And every time this happens, it gets easier and easier to sit with the feelings because I've taught my brain and my body and my cells that I am stronger than the trauma reaction that's going on in my body and I can handle it. So just Mm -hmm. as much as I schedule time to go out, be social, have a good time, entertain myself in those ways, I schedule time when I need to feel bad. Because if I don't, I'm not integrating that back (laughs) into my body. I'm just avoiding it. Do you feel like you've gotten to a place where you can really embrace your story and your pain? Have you gotten to a place where you view it as, you know, as a gift or you're able to view your past experiences (laughs) with gratitude? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends on the day, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, if you do the 30,000 foot overview, I am grateful for the trauma recalls. I'm grateful for having gone through 12 step programs. I'm grateful for all of the pain that I've, I've, because the sitting in the pain is self-love and self-care. It sounds crazy, but avoiding it is abusing yourself more because you're in self-hate and you're in shame. And that is just more abuse that you're putting on yourself. When you go in and you release all of this out of your body and you experience it, you're really truly taking care of yourself because that's the healing. There are days that I hate the fact that I had to live this life. They are a lot fewer and far between, and they do not last as long. I do have to go into self-pity every once in a while. It's just a part of who I am. 
it, to kind of balance it out. I can't mm-hmm. walk around like Superman all the time going, yeah, I got all this together and I've embraced <laughs> it and I've owned it and I've integrated it. At some point, you know, you're just, you're tired, you're cranky, you're emotional. You're going to fall back into that first language of self-hate and self-pity every once in a while. The thing, the key is that I don't beat myself up for it. I'm like, okay, sadness, shame, and self-pity has shown up today. You have a choice. Mm-hmm. You can ride this out and just let it be or you can start beating yourself up and it's going to last 10 times longer than if you just allow it. So I mm-hmm. feel like I've embraced it as much as I can. And each week and each month and each year that I keep doing this, I embrace it more. And the, the self-hate and the self-pity just starts to evaporate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I talk a lot about how blame blocks us from healing. And I know that it's something that you talk a lot about as well. So I was hoping that you could speak to that. Yeah, because blame is, you know, I was, listen, I, I waited for apologies for decades. You know, I, I blamed my entire life was the excuse for me functioning and taking responsibility for my own actions and, and my own well-being. When you blame, you just keep yourself in the victim role. It's an excuse. And listen, I needed to blame to survive. That was my only coping mechanism for a while but it keeps me a victim. I keep putting it on somebody else. It's your fault. You did this to me. I need you to to say the words and to love me the way I need to be loved so that I will be healed. See, I've given up all my responsibility to my abusers. When I stopped blaming and actually took responsibility for my own healing, that's empowering. Like I, I ran out of like my biggest excuse. So then mm-hmm. when I stop blaming, that puts me more into the self-hate and more into the shame. And it gets me closer to the trauma. Blame for me. And listen, it's so easy. And I would love to do it sometimes. Sometimes, you know, if somebody, if I'm biking and somebody cuts me off, I'm going to blame him for breaking my flow. <laughs> I mean, you're still going to blame somebody somewhere. But the empowerment that you get when you start to take, nobody's going to do this work for you. And if these people in your life that did abuse you, that made you feel worthless, if they're, they're not going to show up and do this for you, you are the only one. So you have a choice. The, for me, it was when I first started to stop blaming, it was very confusing because that was a way of getting in touch with my anger to put it on somebody else instead of dealing with it with, uh, on my own. And it just keeps you in this endless loop. Nothing ever changed for me the more I blamed. As soon as I stopped blaming, almost everything changed because you have to do the work. You're the one that has to emotionally go through this, even though it wasn't your fault. It's your life. And it become, your life has to become your responsibility at some point. And you can choose to sit on a couch or lay in a bed and just wither away in blame to nothing and not do anything for yourself. Or you can go for treatments and try to have a positive attitude and keep healthy and work to beat this, to just beat it, not let it beat you. That's what it comes down to. You have to beat your abuse. You have to beat your trauma. You have to empower yourself to become stronger than it. And if mm-hmm. you don't, nobody is going to do it for you. Mm-hmm. What kind of life do you want? Do you want blame exactly. and sit in sadness? Or do you want to be empowered and feel good? Yeah. And it's not just having the trauma and abuse going to remission. It's not just beating that, but we also get to live a life of depth and meaning and get to know who our true selves are and live with purpose. So, you know, the rewards of it are, are much greater than just dealing with the abuse and trauma. There's no, 
end to it when you blame. It's just a loop that you're not going to get out of. At least when you start taking responsibility, it will get a lot worse, the pain, the emotional pain before it gets better. But when it gets better, how much lighter and how empowered and the, the possibilities in your life just vastly open up and you now have choices because when trauma is driving you, you don't have any choices. You are just reacting out of fear and panic. When that starts to subside, your head gets clearer. You can make choices and set boundaries based on what feels right for you. It's all about getting to know yourself without the trauma there. Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about that. Um, I can't remember what I was listening to, but just about the whole process of being in adulthood and, and finally starting to figure out like what I like, what I don't like, what are my interests? I mean, what, what has that process been like for you and what have you learned about yourself? That's it. And that's, I, that's a, that's going to be a lifelong evolution. Because yes. um, the more we start growing, the, you know, things change. What I like today, I might not like in another year. I, I didn't know who I was. I knew who I was supposed to be to feel loved, to feel good, to not feel shame, to not feel guilt. I became that person unconsciously. When you strip that away and it, it, you look around, it's like, what food do I like? What kind of music do I like? What TV shows? What clothes? What things do I like to do? So I just started doing things, anything. And I was like, you don't like this. This isn't you. People are going to like, people are going to judge you. You're judging yourself and you haven't even got off the couch to do it yet. And I would fight through those, all that negative talk. And I would just go do different things. And I would try so many and most of them didn't stick. But the ones that did stick, I have a lot of joy and pleasure I get out of it. It clears my head. It makes me feel good about my day. I would have never did that if I wasn't, because I would have talked myself out of it. I mean, I, I still sit here and I'm like, oh God, I really want to go down and get a chicken donner on McDougal Street, but it's like, you know, <laughs> 60 blocks from here. And mm. it's like, is it really worth taking, you know, a bike ride down 60 blocks to get a sandwich that you like? And it's like, yeah, it is. What Hell yeah. This is what my, <laughs> yeah, this is what my gut is telling me. But I go in my head and it's just like, well, you're really safe here on the couch. You know, you're going to bike all the way downtown. It's going to take, you know, two hours round trip. And, and then like the next thing you know, I'm on the couch and I haven't eaten. Four hours have gone by where if I just would have <laughs> listened to what I felt like. So that's it's starting to listen to that voice more. And the fear gets quieter and your soul starts to get louder. And it's practice. It's talking yourself out of not doing the things that you want to do. And, and reversing it so that you start to show up for yourself and you start, it's building blocks, right? So I, at the beginning, maybe I did one thing a week for me that, that I really wanted to do. And I didn't talk, I wouldn't allow myself to be talked out of it. And then that mm -hmm. starts to add up. It was like, well, that feels good. I feel empowered. That wasn't as scary as I thought. What else can we do this week? And then sooner or later, you just start building on that. But it's so hard to those tapes in your head, the negative talk, the way think, just try to listen to your internal dialogue, how it just stops you from living out of fear, because I'm so conditioned that I'm only allowed to do these seven things on this planet, because growing up, if I did anything outside of those seven, I got shit for it. And I didn't mm -hmm. like the shit that I got because I didn't like how it felt because I internalized it to worthlessness. 
And as an adult, I'm still parenting myself like I was parented in my childhood home, even though I don't live there anymore. So it's learning how to reparent and get those negative tapes out of you. Well, and when you think about it, with the amount of calories that you're going to burn going 60 blocks, you can eat two sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. Double the fun. <laughs> Double the pleasure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Yeah. And that's it. I think there's always this point. I felt like there was always this invisible force field around me where it was like, you know, it was only safe to go to these certain places, but anything outside of that, I just didn't feel safe because I don't feel safe within my body. It's going to those places and pushing your limit a little bit more each time. And before you know it, the things that I do now, I'm, I'm, I, I look back, I'm amazed that I'm actually doing these things to normal humans that don't live with trauma 24 seven. They'd be like, what's the big deal? And that was part of the negative talk too. It's like, you're a grown man, but you're a chicken shit. Why, why is this so difficult? And then you map it back to, well, ha- the fact that I'm not dead in the alley with a needle is a fucking miracle. So, you know, mm-hmm. biking 60 blocks to get a sandwich because that's what I want. And I'm afraid of what could happen on the way there and back as a grown man. I would beat myself <laughs> up and still and still sit on the couch. Now it's it's like you're going to do it. And that's your grown up adult talking to that little scared child. It's like, I got you, man. I am not going to let anything happen to you. We are going to enjoy the ride. We are going to take in the sights. We're going to get a nice sandwich. Maybe we'll go see some friends while we're down there. Like, this is the way I got to talk to myself to get me out of my apartment. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, So what are some things that you're doing for yourself this week that are fun that you enjoy? Oh, well, I love biking through the city. Um, there's always a different place to go. There's different sights and sounds. You know, I can go all the way down to the Chinatown. I go up to the George Washington Bridge. I go out Central Park. Biking in the streets of the city, I, my head has to be on a swivel. So it shuts a part of my brain off that I, I have trouble shutting off at times. So mm-hmm. that's relief for me. So where I would, you know, where I'd be eating pills and drinking booze to shut it off. I get on my bike and I have to pay attention so I don't get killed going down Broadway, but there's, there's a piece in it. So I'm getting exercise endorphins to getting kicked in It's shutting off that part of my brain that that's hard to shut it off sometimes. And there's a freedom in it that I, that I so enjoy Um, music. I go listen to live music all the time. It is like a trip to Cancun. Two hours in a club downtown for me is the equivalent of like a cruise ship for a week. It, mm-hmm. it re-energizes me. It makes me feel good. I, I feel like I belong. Um, and there was always fear. It's like, oh, my God, there's a lot of people. There could be a fight. You know, um, I could be humiliated. I could get mugged. Like, you know, you go through all of these things, you know, and it's like, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> that's 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 there's too many variables that I can't control. And now it's like, I will, I've learned that I will handle what comes up when it comes up. I may be in panic while I'm sitting in the club. I may get, you know, fear may kick in, but it's going to pass. And it's always, I always feel good that I made the effort and talk myself through the fear. In the club. You know, here in San Francisco, it's actually the drivers that their head has to be on a swivel because the bikers and the pedestrians here are... Like they just do what they want. They would all be killed if they were like walking and biking like that in New York city, but here they just do what you want. So 
as the as the driver you have to be like on guard where it's the opposite in new york well it's the, it's kind of the same here the bike and the and the pedestrians have right away over cars but you know it's, it's like tourists walk into the bike lane without looking you know, people make left turns without looking in the mirror. And then you're like, you, you're ended up in their side door. Um, mm -hmm. It's just certain things. But yeah, it's the same here. Pedestrians come first, bikes come second, cars come third. <laughs> Have you ever gotten doored? Um, almost a dozen times. But, you know, it's it's going to happen at some point. Just yeah, it's your right of passage. Yeah, I'm on the bike too much. It's going to happen. I'm not looking forward to it, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I see I see it in my near future <laughs> well this has been amazing why don't you tell everybody all the different resources that you have where they can find you I mean obviously I'll include a bunch of stuff in the show notes but why don't you tell everybody what the hell you've got going on uh yeah my website is joeryan.com I'm on Instagram at joeryan my podcast is called it's not you it's your trauma and if you go to joeryan.com slash links, there's all my social and ways to contact me. That, that page pretty much has everything. I'm telling you, we should start an offshoot of it's not you and it's say it's my trauma and have that be like a dating thing. <laughs> that's a new, that's a new, it, there should be a dating app for people with trauma. Yeah. Oh God. I think they're, I think that's what they all are. <laughs> they no, all not, are. not, no, not ones that cause trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all of them. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Well, my big thing is, so I'm 5'11". And so there is a, um, there is a great epidemic going on in America right now that no one wants to talk about. And that is guys lying about their height on dating apps. It's a real tragedy. Oh, really? Yeah. If it says six feet, like that means that they're probably five nine. Yeah, uh, we guys, you gotta own, you gotta own all of you. Because sooner or later, you're gonna be in the same room, right? So, I mean, who are you kidding? Well, that's what I don't understand. Like, I don't. Do they think that they're somehow gonna be able to woo me so much on a first date that I'm somehow gonna be okay with the fact that they lied about their their height by three inches? Like, it's it's just never gonna happen. <laughs> I guess it's a numbers game. They're just throwing themselves out there everywhere, and I guess the the height thing they've, they've dealt with for so long that they feel they have to lie about it. I don't know. I'm 5'11", so I just <laughs> but that, I never felt like I had to lie about it. Well, the worst was, well, this was kind of a, a different situation. So one time this guy didn't have his height on his profile, but I could tell by the pictures that he was tall. I showed up. This motherfucker was seven foot one. Like you wow. need to warn someone before that happens, you know? Like, yeah, talk about yeah. trauma. He should have texted us to tell you to bring a stepladder so you can give him a kiss. <laughs> Seven foot one. Like, you warned somebody about that. <laughs> see, he's, see, that's why his height isn't on there, because he, he would have probably put 5'11 to get more dates. <laughs> Seven foot and, one. And, should, and then, like, this huge tower comes walking in the restaurant. You're like, yeah, oh. this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been so great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for all that you do. Um, you know, keep being a manly man and talk about your trauma and shit, you know? Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. Uh, You have some serious issues if you did not. Joe is a true badass. Am I right? Please check out the show notes for ways to contact him as well as additional resources. But again, thanks, Joe. You truly are an amazing human. You can also find links to my social media in the show notes. I'm at adultchildpod on Instagram and TikTok. So now it is time for Hit a Girl Up. So I received the following email from Caitlin. Hi, Andrea. Thanks for your podcast. Hearing your experience and your brutal honesty has given me the courage to begin confronting my childhood. However, since beginning this work, it has been extremely challenging being around my parents. Every time I see them, I end up getting extremely triggered and have an emotional hangover that lasts sometimes for days. I don't want to completely cut them off, but at the same time, I feel like spending time with them feels like I'm taking several steps backwards. I wanted to know if you had a similar experience or you have any advice. Thanks so much for all that you do. You've had a tremendous impact on me. Caitlin. Caitlin, thank you so damn much for your message. And I can totally relate to this emotional hangover that you speak of, as I'm sure many people listening can. For me, I don't live in the same uh, place as my parents, so that's a bit of a blessing. Um, But... There have been times where I have cut off or limited communication with my parents. I think that for some of us, it is important that we kind of pull away, whether that's for, you know, a few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years. But what's important to remember is that just because maybe it's not a good idea for us to have a relationship with them right now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be that way forever, I think that for many of us, as we go through our healing journey and we get right with ourselves, we can figure out how to put boundaries in place in order to have a relationship with our family that works for us. But it really is a continual process of just assessing what's best for us and acting accordingly. You know, some of us may never get to a place where we can have a relationship with them, but I think for a lot of us, we can get to that place once we kind of clear up all that shit So hopefully that helps. If you have comments, questions, insights, I'd love to hear from you. Hit a girl up. See the show notes for ways to contact me. I will see you honky tonks next week for another episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super, super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. Don't let it all go.